0: Greetings to you, our folks from Christ Chapel, and a special welcome to those of you who are tuning in by one of the many channels of technology to join us. Short prayers can be effective prayers, and final prayers are often reflective prayers. Today we're going to look at a very short prayer on the lips of Jesus at the moment of his death. But When I think of short prayers, I think of that childhood prayer that somebody taught me Now I lay me down to sleep, Uh, Lord, uh, help me. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Uh, I used to think that was a little gross and a little bit dark for a child to learn. Uh, Now I lay me down to sleep, Uh, Lord, help me. And uh, if I should die, would you take me? Uh, But, uh, over the last few weeks, that seems to be a little bit more serious of a final moment prayer. I teach and uh, my students might have a prayer. Uh, now I lay me down to rest, the Lord help me pass tomorrow's test. If I should die before I wake, that's one less test I have to take. Uh, they, they have Many of them have probably prayed that kind of a prayer. But today we're gonna look at a very short prayer on the lips of our Savior. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 23, verse 46. If you're able to access our sermon notes, we invite you to follow along as we talk. We're certainly living in a season of unprecedented times and unexpected circumstances. We've learned a whole new vocabulary, like shutter in place, self-quarantine, social distancing, mitigating strategies, flattening the curve. And mom was right, and we should have always been, washing our hands and not touching our faces. Whether we like it or not, the coronavirus is also a time for a revelation of character, our thinking, our feelings, our emotions, our thoughts, and even our faith. Even before the current COVID-19 virus scare, historian Arthur Schlesinger observed that our society is marked by an inextinguishable discontent. Our quest is for better and what is next, as he says. We want a better job with better pay and a better boss. We want better relationships and a better car and a better backhand in tennis or a longer drive in golf. And we have the propensity to live endlessly for the next thing, the next weekend, the next vacation, the next purchase, the next experience. When all of those things are absent and unavailable, a crisis like the coronavirus with its disconcerting consequences, can reveal the presence or can expose the absence of contentment. John Stott wrote, contentment is the secret of inward peace. It remembers the stark truth that we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of life. In fact, it's a pilgrimage from one moment of nakedness to another. So we should travel light, he says, and live simply. Our enemy is not possessions, but excess. Our battle cry is not nothing, but enough. We've got enough, simplicity says. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Well, that last phrase from Stott is not just simplicity, it's actually scripture speaking. It's what Paul counseled Timothy in 1 Timothy 6:8. With food and clothing, we can be content. But let's not miss all that that simple statement of necessities omits. What happens when all you have in life, all you have left in life is you? That is where we find Jesus, suffering, hanging in darkness. Listen to this segment from Max Lucato's book, No Wonder They Call Him Savior. You may even wanna close your eyes and just imagine you were there. In Max's, in Inville's style, he says, skull, calvary, crosses, execution, death, noon, cheers, observers, wails, wine, nude, bruised, swollen, crossbeam, sign, ground, nails, pound, pound, pierced, contorted, thirst, terrible, grace, writhing, raised, mounted, hung, suspended, spasms, heaving, sarcasm, sponge, cheers, taunts, forgiveness, dice, gambling, darkness, absurdity, death, life, pain, peace, condemn, promise, nowhere, somewhere, him, us, father, robbers, paradise, wailing, weeping, stunned, mother, compassion, darkness, my God, afraid, scapegoat, wilderness, vinegar, father, silence, sigh, death, relief. There was something about the crucifixion that made every person watching either step toward it or step away from it. It simultaneously compelled and repelled. How do you and I respond becomes the question. With this message, we come to the last of the seven sayings of Jesus as he hung on the cross. As Pastor Cody reminded us last week, the Bible records that Jesus suffered for six hours on the cross. In daylight, for the first three, he suffered at the hands of men, and in the last three hours, he suffered at the hands of God in darkness. The first three of the last sayings of Christ were spoken in the light, the last four during the darkness. The first three demonstrated Jesus' attention on others. The last four involved the suffering in relationship to his Father you've been following, we've encapsulated each of those sayings with one word. Forgiveness, salvation, relationship, isolation, desperation, completion. And today, we come to the seventh, and we've used the term contentment. That may seem a little different for you as we think about the topic, but Johnny Erickson Tata reminds us that contentment has an internal quietness of the heart that gladly submits to God in all circumstances. Never was that attitude more evident than when Jesus was dying on the cross and he uttered that final statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. For our study today, I want to ask and answer two questions. What did that saying mean for Jesus as he died on the cross? And second, what lessons does that saying have for us? as we face the real and serious threats of our current crisis. Follow as I read the account in Luke 23, 44 to 49 so that we can see the context. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. And all of his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Compelled or repelled? Luke records two miraculous events that come before our final statement as we'll talk about today. And that is the uh, darkness that reigned over the face of the earth during those three hours. Beyond any kind of an eclipse that lasts only for minutes or even uh, for 15 or 20 minutes, uh, these three hours of darkness uh, were there to show from God's perspective not only the depth of suffering, but I believe also the sanctity of that suffering, the sanctity of the sacrifice. It was at the same time the worst moment in human history and the best moment of divine mystery. In that singular moment, sin and death were at its worst, the worst sin of humanity to the most innocent who was suffering. It's the worst moment of suffering in human history. It became the best moment for God to demonstrate grace. Sin and judgment were met with grace and forgiveness. When the world was at its worst, ironically God was at his best. What seemed like Satan's greatest victory was in reality the moment of his greatest defeat. The significance of the curtain or the veil in the temple being torn from top to bottom that miraculous event, a thick, thick curtain, uh, miraculously rent in two, signified a new and living way of access that God was providing through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through that curtain, that veil, that he now calls his flesh. The tearing of the veil was symbolic of the tearing of the flesh of Christ on the cross to provide direct access for us through Christ by the Spirit to a heavenly Father. What a moment we have recorded by Luke, the physician and historian. Let's ask those two questions. What did this saying mean for Jesus as he died on the cross? Number one, you'll see in your notes, Jesus prayed with the security of his relationship with the Father. He prayed with security with his relationship with the Father. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father. If you want a fun study while you're uh, confined at home these days, it's especially moving to read through the Gospels and hear the prayers that Jesus prayed using that term Father. He he prayed about his ministry that God had delegated to him. He prayed at the tomb of Lazarus when he raised him from the dead, using that term. At the beginning of the Passion Week, he addressed God as his Father, that it was the moment of glorification. In his high priestly prayer, six times in John 17, he uses that term Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in his agony, he prays it. And now on the cross, he uses it twice. In verses 34 and 46 of Luke 23, John's Gospel tells us explicitly that Jesus did everything by the will and the power of the Father. The appeal to his Father in this moment was in reality an act of trust and dependency rooted in that secure relationship with his Father. What depth is carried by that single word, Father? In the original languages of New Testament times, I wonder if it was simply Abba, Abba. The hands of God are significant. Number two, Jesus entrusted himself to the righteous judgment of his Father. Into your hands, he says, I commit my spirit. Again, if you want a good study, go through the scriptures You have the ability to have a concordance or look up when are God's hands mentioned God is spirit he doesn't have physical hands Jesus did in his incarnation but the term for the hands of the Father is what we call an anthropomorphism it's a using human form to describe characteristics about God and when it's talking about God's hands it's talking about that authority and that power that he demonstrates when you look at it through the, the scriptures it's his hand in creation It's his hand in the providential control of history. It's in his personal care and compassion for people, in his conquest over Satan, sin, and death, and even in carrying out ultimate justice and final justice against sin. It's at the hand of a powerful and sovereign God. Peter in his first epistle lays down a pattern for us that Jesus uh, modeled for us in how we should face suffering even unrighteous treatment by others. He's alluding back to that servant song in Isaiah 53 when he writes, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. In 1 Peter 2.23, when he suffered, he did not threaten. But here's the package. He continually entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. Into his hands, Into your hands, Jesus prayed. I commit my spirit. He entrusted himself into the righteous judgment of his Father. He who knew no sin bore our sins on his own body on the tree. He who was rich became poor so that we through his poverty might be rich. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He entrusted himself into the hands of his father for all that God had purposed for him. That leads us to number three, and that is that Jesus committed himself to his father in light of the promise of life after death. He said, I commit my spirit. In other words, that is an entrustment of oneself to the care and protection of somebody else. That's what that word commit is, it's a present tense word. He's entrusting and continues to entrust himself, committing himself, dedicating himself to the will of God, to walk through the death that was always designed for him, past that curtain of death into resurrection life, by which he could then give us eternal life. The term spirit is used to to represent the whole life of Christ. He committed himself to the Father in absolute trust, that God would see him through his suffering. Listen to how the author of Hebrews reflects back on these final scenes of the Garden of Gethsemane and all of the passion at the cross. Hebrews 5.7 says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now listen, and he was heard. God answered it. He was heard because of his reverence. This, into thy hands or your hands I commit my spirit, was in reality a demonstration of trust, a demonstration of faith. As we've said, commitment, excuse me, contentment, is a demonstration of a commitment of trust. There's actually an Old Testament and Jewish background to this prayer. It really is a quotation like we saw When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A quote from Psalm 22. This one actually is a quote from Psalm 31 in verse 5. It's David's commitment in face of his enemies. He says, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. That psalm is often used in Jewish evening prayers as one who commended himself into the care of God during a night's sleep. In those hours of darkness, as Jesus enters that sleep of death, he takes a similar step of faith. His last words are a commentary not only on his death, but on his whole life. Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit." From first to last, Jesus lived and died to serve the purposes of God. This was not a passive forced death. This was an active submission, not an unavoidable event. In fact, John 10 says as Jesus is speaking, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I raise it up. The Scriptures uh, do tell us that he was crucified at the hands of the Roman soldiers having been delivered over by both Judas to the, uh, to the religious leaders and then from the religious leaders to the political leaders, from the political leaders to the soldiers. But in reality, in the sovereign plan of God, he was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world and nobody could have done what they did had he not actively submitted to his father in fulfilling that plan. He gave himself up for us. His death was voluntary. His death and resurrection was a vindication of both his, the Father's, and the Spirit's authority. Johnny Erickson taught us right. Contentment has the internal quietness of the heart that gladly submits to God in all circumstances. Well, how do we live? What, What lessons are there in this little prayer for us? Let me ask you three very personal questions. Number one, do you have a relationship with God in which you can approach God and call him Abba, Father? Do you have that relationship? How do you have that relationship? The Bible tells us in John chapter one and verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave them the right to be called or to become the children of God. We become a part of God's forever family by faith in Jesus Christ and all that God accomplished in Christ on the cross through his burial and the resurrection. That's the center of the gospel that we especially celebrate these two weekends together. Do you have that relationship? Could you honestly call God Father because you know without a doubt you have believed in Christ and therefore are a part of his family? Number two, Have you personally believed in what Christ accomplished on the cross for your redemption? Do you know you've been redeemed, bought with a price, the very precious blood of Christ? Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him, that's Christ, we have redemption. It's God's term for the payment of sin has been paid and uh, the ransom for uh, the sinner has been accomplished. In him we have redemption through his blood. The result of that is the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins, according to the riches of his grace. A little later in the next chapter he'll say, for by grace you are saved. How? Through faith. Not of works. It's a gift from God. It's not of works. Otherwise we'd boast about it. But We've been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. God has a plan for our redemption, and he has a plan for our life. And that leads us to number three. And that is, are you living in contentment, knowing that when you face death, you have the hope of the resurrection? If you're facing suffering, or if you're facing death, two passages are very relevant here. But before I share those with you, I want to ask you a question. You, like me, probably have watched the news, and we've watched what's happening in New York City. We're watching the trauma of the medical teams. Probably you're going to have post-traumatic stress issues just from being in this environment. And my daily prayer has been for our frontline folks in the medical, on the fire, on the police, those who are producing the protective attire for those that are working with COVID-19 patients. My heart's broken as I think about them not having access to family, having to die in some circumstances all alone. As I've thought and prayed through this passage over the last couple of weeks, my heart's grieved. I have friends who can't visit their loved ones in assisted living care. I have friends who have parents or those who are sick who can't visit them at the hospital. And so it caused me to ask, in light of this passage, if all of life was reduced to that one moment, if when everything else in life was gone, and it was reduced to just yourself and your relationship with Christ, could you still be content? The Bible says we can. It seems so unnatural to think about. But if things happen in Texas, like they happen in New York, and I pray they won't. If things happen for where you are watching from a distance, this service, if it happens, and I hope it doesn't, my family and my children and my grandchildren are praying that God will stop this. We're praying that God will use this. But maybe as never before, you might think, if all of my life was reduced to that final moment in which I... The only thing I could do was commit myself into the hands of God could I still be content would God be enough I have a brother-in-law who passed away just about two years ago early from my perspective younger than I am and he said if Jesus isn't enough then this all thing doesn't mean anything God has done me no wrong and i found that Jesus is enough. I pray that that's your stance today. I want it to be mine. In the time of suffering, Peter gives us this challenge, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will. In other words, outside of anything we've done to cause it, it may be at the hands of others, it may be at the hands of a virus, but let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator By doing what is good. What happens if it faces death? Remember the first martyr of the church, one of our heroes? Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first deacon that was ever chosen. Who ended up as an evangelist and had to give his life for the cause of Christ. Became such a model for us at the point of his death. Being stoned even while Paul, who was then called Saul, looked on holding his robes. Stephen said the same thing Jesus did. And that's why it has application for you and for me. Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Even in the face of martyrdom, the hand of an enemy, Stephen caught the spirit of our Savior, That forgiving spirit doesn't justify the event, but releasing judgment to someone else, he commits himself into the hands of a holy God. Proverbs chapter 19, 23 has meant a lot to me this week. The fear of the Lord leads to life, then one rests content, untouched by trouble. You say, man, did the writer know what he was talking about? Through many tribulations we enter into glory. What is this trouble? It's ultimate trouble. It's ultimate death. It's final death apart from God. All else is temporary. And when we have the faith to trust our hands, excuse me, ourself in the hands of a holy God, we can rest content. Johnny Erickson was right. Nancy Lee Moss put it this way, commitment, excuse me, contentment, is just the realization that God has already provided for me today. All that I need for my present peace and happiness. For those of us in the Christ Chapel family and beyond, this virus may very well touch us. And my prayer today is that you and I would be prepared whether it be a temporary suffering or whether that would be the way God would choose to take us home. When all of life is reduced to all that you have is your relationship with God. Would you, could you? Would I, could I? Just say, Father, I trust you. And I could die in contentment. If I couldn't, I'm asking for something that God didn't think was necessary for me to have that kind of a relationship. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, it's a somber moment in the life of Christ, and it ought to be a somber moment for us to ask and answer that question, could I, could I commit myself solely to you if nothing else was around me? If there was no family member bedside, if there was no... uh, one to talk to other than you. Could I be content? Lord, thank you for giving us, the Bible says, everything necessary for life and godliness through the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. We've celebrated that today with the bread and the cup. May we live it this week in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.